Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. In this podcast, we run through some evidence-based medicine, a little snippet about evidence in practice, the critical appraisal note, and then a couple of cases and the evidence that's associated with them. If you want to get involved with the Archives of Diseases of Childhood Archimedes section, please look us up on the website and find out the instructions how. But first, the critical appraisal note. We've said before that evidence-based medicine is all about using the best available evidence for the care of the individual child or family or population, depending on whether you're doing uh, medicine at the level of people or families or entire populations. And, and while we would all love our treatments to be supported by large, randomised clinical trials and systematic reviews, most of these Archimedes are living proof that this isn't often the case. Sometimes we'll be in a situation where the treatment could be quite reasonably subjected to a randomised trial. But there isn't a trial that's up and open to access. So what if we offer that treatment? Does that make it an experimental treatment? What, what does experimental even mean in the setting of treatments? The concept that I have is that an experimental therapy is one that we haven't used it for this indication. The drug may well have been used in humans, may well even have been used in children. But the basis for the choice is pathological or pathophysiological. Each time we use a new drug, though, surely it's an experiment for each child. Well... It's a reasonable suggestion, but it uses a different flavour of the meaning. It suggests that anything with an uncertain outcome is an experiment. And that's not really a common use of the word, is it? Experimental therapies don't have clinical experience, though they may have pathological reasoning, and they are necessary to advance medical care. But the advances should, quite reasonably, be undertaken within the strict guidelines and guardianship of research ethics frameworks where there are legal and moral codes and there are checks and balances against the risks and the potential failures in safety. To undertake this sort of work outside of a framework like that could put the patient, the family and indeed the clinician at significant risks. So the frameworks as I see them in law and governance are to safely support the advancement of medical science. Experimenting or fiddling outside of those can often be seen as a rogue behaviour. Now I'm not saying that all rogues are unattractive nor are they not useful at times nor are they quite a lot of fun and actually quite often the opposite is true and they are attractive and fun and you'd quite like to go for a drink with them but do we want rogues looking after the children the first question we have is a question asked about steroids i love steroids i'm an oncologist we use lots of steroids they do really good things for a variety of things but this is not an oncological question The question is, is oral dexamethasone as good as oral prednisolone for childhood wheeze that requires steroids? The authors of this study were Jiska Steensma and Chris Bird from the emergency department at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford in the UK. The scenario is a five-year-old boy presenting to the emergency department with an acute exacerbation of asthma. He's got a tight chest, he's got an oxygen requirement, and he's often in the paediatric respiratory clinic. He's normally on a preventer or inhaler, and so you're treating him with back-to-back nebulizers and oral prednisolone, and he probably vomits. 
The specialty trainee that's working with you says that she'd heard of a recent trial showing that a single dose of oral dex is as good as three days prednisolone. And you know from your own experience that oral dex seems better treated than prep when you're thinking about the kids that you've been treating for croup. Given that this kid's vomited, and actually quite often kids vomit with oral pred, you wonder if the entire thing should switch across. This gang went away and asked the question, for children presenting to the emergency department with wheeze who require steroid therapy, that's the patient, is oral dexamethasone inferior to oral prednisolone in the management of symptoms? They went away and they searched in PubLed and Medline, looking using a variety of mesh and text terms to try and get hold of the answer to this question. What they found was a series of randomised controlled trials, some cohort studies and a meta-analysis that drew together 949 children that had been in six studies that were comparing the use of dexamethasone against prednisolone. Now, that particular meta-analysis pulled together the oral and the intramuscular dexamethasone doses, and it seems that in North America, uh, intramuscular dexamethasone is a, is a bit of a thing. That showed that there was no differences in the relapse rate of wheezing, but there was quite a lot less vomiting with the dexamethasone ones. There are then two largish RCTs that happened after this, with 226 children in Ireland and 590 children in Spain. Irish study comparing a single dose of dexamethasone to three days of PRED, and the Spanish study looking at two days of dexamethasone against a sort of five-day cycle of prednisolone. Both of those looked to see if there was a difference in asthma-type scores, respiratory-type scores, and then also things like the side effects, the, the vomiting, unscheduled admissions, and so on. And what they showed was that there was no difference in the effectiveness of dexamethasone against prednisolone. There's a couple of other studies, retrospective cohort and observational studies, showing really low rates of return when they were given dexamethasone and prednisolone, and showing the two drugs appeared to be equally useful when used in a real-life context, for want of a better phrase, um, rather than just in a trial context. Now, this is actually quite impressive, because dexamethasone as a single shot might be a lot more easily tolerated than sending kids home and having them take tablets repeatedly over the course of the next few days. It's probably less by ways of side effects. It certainly appears to be cheaper when you take the BNF style dosing for the UK market and it appears to be as effective. When you put all this information together there really doesn't appear to be a benefit from using prednisolone over dexamethasone. The authors suggest that we really should be switching across and using dexamethasone in the first line. Now what they haven't looked at are some of the neuropsychological consequences of dexamethasone that we see when we give it oncological for large doses for a long period of time, but I personally doubt that they will be much use. Something to think about from your Archimedes this month. The second question that's being asked is also about breathing, but in a really quite different context. Abdul Razak at the Department of Paediatrics at McMaster in Hamilton in Canada asked a question all about neonates and how best to encourage them to breathe. We all know that neonates are quite annoying and that they don't breathe sometimes. And so what was being asked is how do we help them with a continuous positive airway pressure type of things? Do we use nasal mask or do we use binasal prongs? 
this is set in a, a scenario where there's a 20 week, uh, 29 week gestational infant born with RDS and needing CPAP to keep it okay. The questions being raised is do they really need a full mask or can they get away with binasal prongs? The authors went away and they searched extensively across Cochrane, Medline, the Sinal database and looked through a variety of 481 separate records. What they pulled together was six randomised controlled trials and one existing systematic review. The six RCTs were of variable quality. They included uh, somewhere between 150 and 70 or so infants in each trial. And the systematic review that had been conducted had pulled together trials up to 544 separate infants. The size of the babies included were varied between trials. Some of them were in the sort of that moderate prematurity type range. Some of them were a little bit broader. Some of them were based on weights with 500 to 1500 grams or so. So there was a little bit of heterogeneity between the populations that were being covered. And these were pulled together um, by the authors to look at a variety of different outcomes. The, the main outcome that was being looked at was a failure of the nasal CPAP approach. So be it mask or be it by nasal pronged, did they need to go into ventilation or did they need to go uh, and have some other support applied to them? When the authors of this pooled those studies together, they found that there was little difference between the two. Um, but the nasal mask did appear to be a little bit better, uh, but not significantly so. Looking at the secondary outcomes of things like nasal trauma, um, that showed that there was a small reduction using the mask versus using the um, probably improved by nasal prongs. Um, so not strikingly different. And of the trials that followed up for chronic lung disease, unsurprisingly, there wasn't a striking difference in the chronic lung disease population, uh, whether you'd had it with the nasal mask or whether you'd had it with the binasal prong approach. So looking at this, pulling all of these things together, what you've got is that there's a, a probable benefit to using the mask rather than the prongs for maybe endotracheal ventilation or sort of CPAP failure, maybe uh, nasal trauma, almost certainly when you put everything together it is a bit better but it's a bit unclear as to exactly how much better that is and, and probably very little difference realistically um, in looking at the, 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 the long term outcomes of chronic lung disease at any degree of severity. The recommendations from this that the authors have come to really is that consider using the mask rather than the prongs if you have that. Um, but that's more about the early benefits rather than any late benefits. Um, and that it will take some degree of skill and learning to make sure that the masks are applied properly and that you have the right sort of equipment to run this in the first place. I would advise those interested in this topic to have a really careful read of this Archimedes. It's fuller and nearer a systematic review than most of the Archimedes that get submitted. So tons of effort's gone into it. It really does look at drawing together that information and evaluating the different sorts of elements that are in there. So, until next month, thank you very much for listening to this Archimedes podcast. Please feel free to send in your questions and queries. What have you been wondering about your practice that's been going on during this week? 
Can you find evidence that will support others and save them having the same sorts of wonderings that you've been having? And maybe plump your CV a bit while you're at it. Check the website for details. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.